Our message today is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're continuing our series called Enduring Hope. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, things worth remembering. You know, there's a lot of memories that happen in our lives, and uh, I think back on, on a lot of things. I remember the day I was saved. It was pretty easy to remember because... Uh, it was a, a very important moment in my life, and I remember that day that I trusted Christ as my Savior. I remember later on, later on having a very transformational experience with the Lord. I remember my first uh, church, going out to my first church. There were four people there on the first Sunday. That was pretty exciting. It was in Center City, Texas, which is a suburb of Gothwaite, right? And I uh, remember that. Uh, I'm proud to say that we went from four to 16. We quadrupled. Uh, so that was good. Of course, you, you remember your wedding day and how exciting that is. I was standing in the back with, waiting to go out with my groomsmen, and one of the, uh, the pastors spoke up, and he said, you know, over in Holland, they pass the bride's shoe around and have people put money in it. And one of the guys said, you should have married a woman with a bigger foot. So uh, I told him, hush, this is serious. Remember the first uh, people I baptized were four kids. Uh, two, they were all cousins, and they called the church. We were at Jones Chapel Baptist in early, and they called the church and said, "Do you have a Sunday school class?" We didn't, but I said, "Absolutely, <laughs> we do." And we started one the next week, and they came to faith in Christ, and so it was exciting to baptize them. And then I did some of their weddings, so that was pretty neat. Just a lot of great memories along the way. People, uh, last week, not this past Monday, but the Monday before, I did the funeral for one of my very best friends, Bill Rowe, who was a mentor to me and just a, a great blessing. And just when I thought about the service and all the things he had meant to me, there were wonderful memories. And uh, of course, last Sunday, we were back over in Teague, where we, were, we lived there. We were pastor there for 15 and a half years. And so they asked me to come back for their 140th anniversary which was, was really neat, uh, and I got to thinking about that. I think I was the only pastor left that could still stand in the pulpit. So anyway, we were glad, I was glad to be able to go back and preach for that. And uh, of course, I'm always thankful every day for the opportunity that we have here and what God is doing and wants to do in our midst here in Hillsboro. So all those things are worth remembering. And uh, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, there's some things worth remembering about you and things that you're doing really, really well. And I want to commend you for that. And I want to talk about that this morning. If you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus or Silas and Timothy were with Paul on his second missionary journey. So they were with him when he went to Thessalonica. It was a major city. They won people to Christ. They, they started a church there. And then in the next part of the verse, it says, To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you find more security than that for a church? If we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a double grip, isn't it? So that's a wonderful, wonderful blessing to know that you think about that. He, he says the church of the Thessalonians. The word church there means the ones who are called out. And it can also mean an assembly. So he said, you are the assembly that's different from all the other assemblies in the city. You are a church. You are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there was a lot of other assemblies, a lot of false religions and a lot of other meetings. But when you think about that, there's something very unique about us as a church or any other church. There's a lot of assemblies in towns. There's service clubs. There's 
You know, there's all kinds of different organizations that help people. But, but we alone as the church have the privilege of being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a very unique assembly. And so he writes to them and reminds of that. And then he says, grace to you and peace. And he says that often. Uh, the word grace, of course, is God's unmerited favor. That's kind of a Greek greeting. And then peace would be a Jewish greeting. Shalom. May you have wholeness. May you have wholeness in your life. More than in mind, body, and spirit. There's a sense of wholeness for you. And he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul was a man of prayer. In every letter he wrote, he talked about how he prayed for the churches. Now, I know Paul meant that, and so he must have spent a lot of time. I think he must have gotten up early in the morning to pray for these churches and for these people that he loved. And so he said, I'm praying for you. And then he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So he said, these are the things that I commend you for, that I remember you for. These are the things that are worth remembering. And the first one, he says, I am remembering your work of faith in verse 3. And if you look down at verse 9, there's a parallel passage there in verse 9. I know Tim kind of covered the middle verses here, so I'm going to sandwich that this week. But uh, if you look in verse 9, there's a parallel passage. It says that we give thanks for your work of faith. And then if you look in verse 9, it says they report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols. There was a work of faith in their life that, that came by God's grace, that they turned their lives from the false idols and the false gods that were everywhere in the city and in that culture, and they trusted in God. They turned from God to God from their idols. But he says, I want to commend you for your work that has been produced by your faith. And the word work there means, it could mean business or employment. He said, I want to commend you for the business that you're in. What business are you in? What business are we in as a church? Well, we're in the business of reaching people for Jesus and lifting them up and helping them to grow in their faith along the way. That's the business we're in. He says, I want to commend you for being doing a good job in the business that we're in as Christians and your work of faith. But notice that he says that their faith is not produced by work, but their work was produced by their faith. Now, that, that's a revolutionary thing, and it was in their day and time because all the other religions in the world say you have to work to appease whatever God you're trying to appease, and maybe, just maybe, you can do enough things to please Him. But the scriptural idea is that our faith produces our works, that God has said to us, it's not what you do for me that makes you acceptable in my sight, it's what I have done for you through the cross. And so because of that, because of the faith that I've given you, it is, produces works in your life. Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is what? It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. None of us could ever strut into the kingdom of God. We all come bowed before Him humbly because we understand that it took the grace of God to get us into the kingdom. But then he goes on in the 10th verse and he says, for we are His workmanship. We are a work in progress. We are His workmanship created in God for good works that He has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. What kind of works? Well, the works of the kingdom. We want to do kingdom work in our hearts and our lives. Paul didn't specify really what kind of works he, 
you know, maybe the normal church things, like you're there for one another in a crisis. You know, people gathered around and we're praying for Jerry right now. That's our job as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to lift him up. And my heart is very burdened for him, and I know yours is as well. But I'm thankful for people to take good care of him. Uh, but talking about things that, you know, like things that we do, that, that you do for one another. You're there for one another when there's a need. You're, you're helping each other out. We're doing projects. There's all kinds of things like that. But if you read the rest of the chapter and continue to read through the epistle, what he's really proud of them for is getting the word outside of the meeting place and into the community. They're going out in the community and they're telling people. Now, I don't know if they're doing that. I don't think they're really doing that in, quote, an organized way, although there's nothing wrong with that. I think as they went every day, as they went to their workplace, and as they were here and there and everywhere, they were in the business of spreading the good news. And so, what is your business in mind? Well, it's our business as a group, but it's also our business as the individuals to share the good news with those that we come in contact with. And Paul said, I want to commend you for that. Your work of faith, you, you're not only saying you believe, you are in the business of partnering with God to spread the gospel where we are. And he said, he's giving them an attaboy, like I told the kids earlier. Someone put it this way, many Christians today worship at Bedside Baptist and St. Mattress Methodist. But they never get involved. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm a member down there or over there or out yonder. But it's another thing to say, because God has been so kind and so gracious to me, I am more than glad to serve Him. There is something about my faith that makes me reach out in, and want to serve Him and want to go to work for Him. It's amazing how grace, you know, we sing about amazing grace. If you're a Christian, you can sing that song with very deep meaning. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You remember the old song? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such an I? You remember what such you remember what the original verse was? It says, For such a worm as I. And I don't know about you, but I understand that in the in the presence of God, in the perfection of God, and the power of God and the holiness of God, that I would never be anything but a worm. But He came to die in my place. He devoted that sacred head for worms, for sinners, for people who have gone astray, such as you and I. What an incredible blessing that is. And so by grace, He reaches down and while we are yet sinners, Christ dies for us. And then He stirs our hearts and the winds blow across our hearts and we respond to that by faith. And He even gives us the faith to respond. He is an incredible, wonderful God. And so... You think about that with me for a minute. He has saved us out of death and out of hell and eternal separation from Him. Therefore, that's a pretty good motivator to do, to work for Him, to be in His business, to join Him in that business. Amen? And so He says, I want to remember you. I want to commend you. I want to give you an attaboy because of your work produced by faith. When others think of you and me, they ought to be able to say, you don't just... Think about it. You do it. Your work, your faith produces good works. But then secondly, he says, I remember your labor of love. In verse 3 there, he says, your labor of love. If you look down to verse 9, he says that they turn to idols. What's the next, next phrase there? You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. 
you turned away from them so that you could serve God, that you could do a labor of love. And the word labor there is, is it takes it to a whole different level. It's not just work. It is, it, that word means working to the point of exhaustion, exerting yourself it, with exceptional exertion. That you are willing to go the first and the second and the third mile of whatever it takes for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. And he says, I am proud of you because of your labor of love. Your labor is, is motivated by love. Now you understand that as parents and grandparents, right? Have you ever exerted yourself with an exceptional effort on, on behalf of your child? Sure you have. We've all seen parents go the first and second mile. We, you're, you're willing to drive for miles and miles. You're willing to spend and be expended and be exhausted. You're willing to do whatever it takes to help your children to develop into whatever God would want them to be. You're, you're willing to be there for them. You give exceptional effort, really, if you're a good parent. You, you're willing to give exceptional effort on behalf of them. And why is that? Well, hopefully that's motivated by love. Now, I, I know that there are some parents that are motivated by who knows what, but a godly parent is motivated by love for their children, and they, and they go this extra, extra mile. They give them, they spend themselves financially, emotionally, and in every way they can to see that those children are, are in the right place and doing the right thing. But not only that, all of us know about athletes who give themselves. And some of you probably were, or maybe you are one of those athletes. You have to work hard, don't you? You have to exert yourself to be an exceptional athlete, to raise yourself above someone else. You have to be exceptional in, in your exertion in that, in your effort. Um, you know, you see people, they so love competition that they give themselves emotionally to the point of exhaustion. And, you know, yesterday uh, was college football. Today is NFL. And I know a lot of you could, couldn't care less about that. But you're going to hear, when you hear the highlights, you're going to hear about people who rose to the top. Why? Because they gave an exceptional effort. They gave themselves. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. The, the Thessalonians not only served God with a whole hum, they served God with, with a, a fever, with a fire, with a, a something in their belly that was motivated by this deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talked about in the Olympic Games how people compete for an earthly prize and how much more important it is for us to exert ourselves for a heavenly prize because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you get when you come to know God? Well, you get Jesus, and that's the most important thing, isn't it? He's the most important thing. What about people? I don't know how many of you have ever heard of David Brainerd, but David Brainerd was... In the 18th century, he was an American missionary. He was one of the very first ones. He decided to take the gospel to the, what we know as the Indians, which were the Native Americans. But he went out into the woods and into the wilderness to take the gospel to those Native Americans. And he preached to them and he spent and expended himself and he gave exceptional effort and he worked and he was sick and he was tired and he was exhausted and and the, the, the Native Americans were not coming to Christ. And, and after his years of service, and he might have won maybe 30 to 40 people, 30 to 40 of those Native Americans to Christ, he finally left the forest and left the woods and the wilderness to go back home when he knew he was so sick he was going to die. And he, he went back considering himself a bit of a failure because he, he had not had the success he wanted to have. 
But David Brainerd didn't know the rest of the story. Because you, when you read the private papers of John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism and who was a man on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I mean, he rode a horse miles and miles and miles and thousands of miles and preached and preached and preached and won people the Lord Jesus Christ. They said that he, when he died, he left a coat and a hat and a Bible in the Methodist church. That, that was his, he was full of the fire and the fever of exceptional effort. And then when you read the private papers of William Carey, who was the founder of the modern missions movement, and you read the private uh, writings of Adoniram Judson, who was the founder of the Baptist missions movement, all of those people, when you read their private writings, they were inspired by David Brainerd, who gave himself so completely and with such exceptional effort to those Native American peoples that they might come to know Christ. Little did he know that when he died, considering that he had not really impacted the world, how much his devotion would impact the world through future generations. What an incredible story that is. Someone put it this way, for most of his contemporaries, Christianity was a dull habit. For David Brainerd, it was an acute fever. What about that? When I read that quote, I thought about what about my own life? Is, is my Christianity a, a dull habit or an acute fever? I want it to be an acute fever, don't you? I want, I want to be fired afresh with the fire of the very Spirit of God. I want to have that kind of commitment. I want to give an exceptional effort for my Lord, don't you? Because I love Him. Not because I'm trying to earn His favor. I already have His favor. But because of His favor, I want to give exceptional effort. And I know you do as well. And so when others see what we do for God, they should be able to say, wow, you really love the Lord because you're giving an exceptional effort. And so you, you demonstrate your faith by your work, he says. You've turned from idols to the living God. You have shown a labor of love and your love is intense and it's an acute fever that you have for God and you've turned to serve the true and living God. And then the last thing he talked about is their enduring hope. In verse 3 and then in verse 10 he says, to wait for His Son from heaven. And in every chapter of Thessalonians, you find the theme of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was it that kept their hope going? They knew that Jesus was coming. And because of that, they endured. And the word endured there, steadfast, it says in the New American Translation. And it may say endured in your translation. But it's a word that means to stay under the burden. When I was a boy, I had an older brother, and my dad, we were always out doing a project. We lived in the country, and there was always something to do. And some of you live out on a farm or a ranch, and you know there's always things to do. So we were not inside watching TV or playing video games. As a matter of fact, we didn't have video games. So, And we, if, even if we did, Daddy wouldn't let us be in the house doing that. We were out supposed to be helping, but... He, he, would, he was just always so determined that he would get something done. Even if he didn't, you know, he, he wasn't strong enough to do it or something. He would rig something up to lift it up or something. And many times I remember him trying to do something and us boys would be standing there watching and he'd look at us and say, are you just going to stand there or are you going to help me? You know, and... Those, that was indelibly in my mind and my heart. And that meant you better get busy. Uh, 
But there was a hope on the other side of that, that the job was going to be finished, that we were going to get that done, that it was, there was an enduring hope. So it means to stay with it until you get the job done. But then secondly, it also means to stay with it in spite of the obstacles. You ever run into any obstacles? There's always obstacles in life, isn't there? But there's something about Christians. There's something about the hope that is within us that keeps us moving forward. It's called, uh, you know, Jerry Clower used to call it bulldog hang on foreverishness, never giving up. It's like one guy said, I'm not dogmatic about things, I'm bulldogmatic about things. You know, you, you get your head set on this hope and, and your heart set on this hope and you don't give up. Now, you might in your flesh and your own ability, but there's a Spirit of God that lives within you that will not let you give up. Amen? So you keep moving and you know that you're going to make it. Uh, Luis Samparina, Samparina, you Samperini. You might have uh, seen the movie Unbroken about him. He was an elite distance runner in high school, and he was so talented when he left high school immediately, he was on the 1936 Olympic team, and he ran the 5,000-meter race. He finished eighth overall in the world at the Olympics. He, and one of the side notes is he got to shake the hand of Hitler. Of course, he didn't know how bad that was going to be eventually, but... Um, he went on to the University of Southern California. He set a record that lasted for 15 years in the mile run. But all of that wasn't anything compared to what was going to happen to him because he was preparing for the 1940 Olympics. And during that time, World War II broke out, of course, and he joined the Army Air Corps. And he was a bombardier. Well, he got shot down over the ocean and he was in a, a raft for 47 days with a couple of buddies. One of them died out there and he finally got rescued by the Japanese and they took him to a camp and they tortured him and they knew who he was they found out who he was and so they just made it worse on him because he's an Olympic hero so they tortured him and they did all kinds of terrible things to him they worked him almost to death they humiliated him because of his fame and success so what did he do when the war ended Luis Zamperini became a Christian but not only a Christian but a Christian of enduring hope. He became a Christian who went back to Japan and personally met with each one of those people who had mistreated him and forgave them and shared with them what had happened in his life. Why did he do that? Why was he able to stand two years of this torture and this terrible thing that happened to him in that prison camp? Because he had hope that one day, one day, it was going to be over and he was going to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Why do we endure as Christians, especially when we go through tragic and, and bad things in our lives and, and when it seems like everything is heading in the wrong direction? Why do we endure hope? Well, it's not just because we, we have hope. But listen to this. Our hope as Christians goes even deeper than that. Our hope is not just that someday all it's going to be over, but our hope is this. Our hope is that we will eventually be released from this limited human body. Amen? That we will be redeemed from the temptations of this world. When we step into heaven, no more temptation. How wonderful. That we will be rescued from the injustices of this life. That we will be refined into the image of Christ. That we will really, really, really be like Him when we see Him. 
that we will be restored completely and have a perfect relationship with Almighty God forever and ever and ever. And that's why Paul said, I remember you. Because your faith has turned into marvelous works. And because your love for the Lord has made you, uh, has given you an acute fever to labor to the point of exhaustion, to give an exceptional effort for the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I know you're never going to give up because you have a hope that endures. And when we get there, we want to hear the same things, don't we? You see, one of these days, people are going to be sitting around talking about you and me because we'll be gone and they'll be talking about the church. And don't you want them to say, you know, I remember them. I remember them for their work of faith and their labor of love. Boy, they didn't give up because they had such great hope. Listen to this quote. Mediocrity inspires no one. This church clearly lived for Christ with passion and expectancy. There was nothing mediocre about their faith, their love, or their hope. There was nothing mediocre about their faith, or their love, or their hope. In a moment when we give this invitation and we have a moment to just prayerfully, and I know sometimes that's time for us to think about, you know, lunch or getting our stuff together or whatever, but think a little deeper this morning, would you? Think about, in my heart and in yours, is there a mediocrity about my faith and my hope and my love? Or is there a fever and an acuteness and a, and a, a hopefulness that is spurring me onward? To not only serve, but to serve with an exceptional love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? <coughs> Being a good Catholic boy, he cried out, St. Anne, have mercy on me, I'll become a monk. And it was through that that he entered into study to be a monk, and he was an excellent monk. The Bible, uh, the history says that he... Uh, he punished himself and went through all the rituals. And later on, he said, you know, if being a monk could get you into heaven, I was the best monk you could be. But he was studying. He was a lecturer. He was a professor and he was studying the scriptures. And one day his eyes fell upon Romans where it says the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And he got to thinking about the Catholic Church and how. They taught that it was the sacraments that saved. And he, he came up with 95 theses against indulgences in the church. What was an indulgence? Well, an indulgence was something where you could pay money to, to take care of your own sins or to get somebody out of purgatory. As a matter of fact, one of the main guys that preached this was a, a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. And here was his quote. Once the coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. Great slogan, right? That was even before ad agencies, I suppose. Once the coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory, heavenly springs. Luther's thought, this ain't right. <laughs> and so he understood being born again, that this wasn't right, that people were paying to have their sins taken care of. The church was receiving money from it, but it wasn't right. 
And so he came up with the 95 Theses. Well, a few years later in 1521, he was brought before the council. And this is what happened. I want to share this and then we're going to finish. When he walked into the presence of Charles V and other powerful persons at the Diet of Worms in April 1521, to answer charges of heresy and to hear a possible death sentence, an old knight was heard to say, Little monk, I like the step you take, but neither I nor any of our battle comrades would take it. Consider that little Augustinian monk who shocked Christendom by his defiance of papal authority and who at last stood trial for his life. During a high moment in the trial, Martin Luther exclaimed, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. And that ought to be a good place for a Baptist amen, right? I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. And he began the Reformation movement, and it's part of why you and I are here today, to worship God freely. Because he had boldness to share in spite of opposition. He knew he had the power of God and God's word on his side, and his motives were pure. What else could they be when he would stand before a council when his life was threatened? And so when we look at our own hearts and lives, do we have, by God, the strength to go forward even when it, it's uncomfortable or when it's a challenge to us? Will we trust God and step out on faith? And will we examine our motives to make sure that they're pure because we're doing this out of love for God? Let's stand together as we pray this morning.